Welcome to the Queer Movie Podcast, celebrating the best and worst in LGBTQ plus cinema, one glorious genre at a time. I'm Rowan Ellis. And I'm Jazza John. Each episode, we discuss a movie from a different genre of cinema. This episode's genre is... Queer, Queer Oscars, Oscars 2022. What a mess, that was too wow. long. Now, true... True fans of the pod, uh, we know you're out there, will know that we've covered the Oscars before, uh, twice actually up to this point, uh, with both The Favourite and Moonlight. Feel free to go back and listen to those episodes. Uh, But uh, the Oscars are apparently important, and we know the Academy loves a sad gay movie, so here we are again. Although debatable on how sad this one is. We'll get into it later in the episode. Um, Mm. Before we dive into the episode itself, as always, I have to ask, Jazza, what's the gayest thing that you've done since we last talked? Uh, so I got COVID. No, that isn't the gayest it's not thing fair. that it's I've not done. Gayest. I mean, it's pretty gay, yeah, Jazza, yeah, but it's yeah. not the gayest. Well, yeah. It's not like I went to Puerto Vallarta. Um, or how, is it Puerto Vallarta? Yeah, the place that all of the American gays went. They were on a boat and they sank in the middle of the pandemic. What? You need to be on gay Instagram. Oh, well, was... sorry, I clearly wasn't on the right part <laughs> of the okay. internet to find out about that. But uh, I uh, got COVID, and I can, can confirm it's not fun. And I uh, was isolating for 13 days because I continued to test positive for that long because I got a, a really big load of the virus. Wow, okay. Um, and so halfway through my isolation, I decided to shave a moustache. Um, which now, according to the Michael Henry sketches, uh, makes me uh, into kink. So there you go. Yeah, that was pretty gay, actually. That moustache was very much a gay moustache. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That's um, true. Um, how about you, Rowan? So I'm slightly cheating because my one, you also did. But I couldn't, <laughs> it's work. I couldn't think of another <laughs> one. It's work. Um, basically, the BFI Flare Festival is uh, upcoming, which is the big LGBT film festival in the UK. Uh, run at the British Film Institute and me and Jazza applied for press accreditation and, and the accepted. idiots the fools those fools accepted us um, <laughs> so I mean I'm going to embarrass myself and say right now here live on the podcast recording we're going to attempt something to do with the festival whether yeah. it's like trying to find someone to interview trying to see if any of the films are things we want to cover on the podcast a mm-hmm. special episode something if you never hear about Flare Festival again on this podcast that Pretend I fault. never said that. Yeah. Like, no, you didn't. You never heard me say this. <laughs> Excellent. Also, we're in person. Yeah, for the first time in a while. You're looking at me. Oh my God, right dead in the eyes. It's a little bit. No blinking. No, stop it. <laughs> we haven't actually recorded an episode of the podcast in the same space since 2019. Jesus Christ, since the before times, yeah. Yeah, before COVID. And so this is wild. The reason why we decided to do it together this time was because we recorded a little video for my channel. A little video? The raw footage is two hours long. Yeah, it's a lot. Basically, there's a lot that can be said about the Quit Oscars and we knew that we couldn't necessarily cover it all during this episode of the podcast because we do try and keep them under an hour. Please do not go and look at our previous podcast lengths (laughs) to prove us wrong on that. Um, (laughs) And so we thought, oh, we'll do it like as a video. I'll talk about it on my channel. So hello, if you are here from that video, welcome. Hi. Um, sorry. <laughs> Hopefully it was interesting. We'll try not to do too much overlap, but we might uh, talk a little bit about some of the stuff we talked about in the video just to dig further into this film in particular. So today's film is Jane Campion's Power of the Dog, adapted from the mid-century novel of the same name by Thomas Savage. It is one of those films that was in cinemas for like two weeks to get the minimum amount it needed to be nominated for an actual Oscar and was then distributed by Netflix, which is where uh, everybody watched it. This episode is going out the week before the actual Oscars, so we don't know what is going to happen uh, in terms of this film. It is widely tipped to win Best Picture, um, and I think a lot of people will be surprised if it doesn't. And it's also been nominated for 11 other Oscars. So I feel like we can confidently say, soon to be Oscar winning, Power of the Dog, because if it loses (laughs) all 12 of those Oscar nominations, I feel like that will be quite a feat. I almost, because it's the front runner, I almost wanted to lose all of them. Wow, okay. 
Yeah, but that's just my chaotic news you're coming out. That's just the homophobia coming out. <laughs> yeah, my internalised homophobia, which we will definitely talk about later. Um, Here is a breakdown of how we're going to talk about Power of the Dog. First of all, we want to give you a bit of context of the Oscars and also a representation of queer relationships that have big age gaps like the one that is... Well, is it a relationship? Great question, Jazza. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> Every, basically, uh, everything we've talked about so far, we will in fact talk about later. We will then split the plot into three, as we always do on this podcast, and explain this what is essentially a very long PSA uh, to be careful around anthrax it's a two hour long or PSA <laughs> to use anthrax for your own gains does he does we'll he we'll talk about it later uh, by the way there are going to be huge spoilers for this movie so if you uh, care about spoilers watch the movie before you listen to us and then we know this film is gay because the critics told us so but exactly how gay is it considering it was set in 1925 Montana ooh well complicated uh, we'll give the film our very special gay ratings to determine just how queer it is so without further ado let's start practicing our scales for dinner with the governor and celebrate power of the dog Okay, so Jazza, when we do the research for these episodes, we typically will know the types of things we might want to research and we'll split it up to make sure we don't have any overlap. And Jazza very generously was like, you can just do the Oscars. And I was like, great. And then it turns out we did an entire like two and a half hour recording about the Oscars Mm. about five minutes ago. Mm. So my brain is just Oscar full right now. But essentially, the queer history of the Oscars was... A lot of nothing for a while there, while the Hayes Code was in place, where there wasn't any queer stuff at the Oscars at all. The Oscars recognised queer people in the industry behind the scenes kind of sooner than it recognised them in front of the camera. And so a lot of people talk about queer actors, actresses' roles being almost like the most important part of this. Mm. Queer roles in particular, because that ultimately will be within some kind of queer themed, queer vibed movie um, with some kind of queer story, um, especially if someone is nominated for best lead. And so for a long time we had nothing. And then we sort of started to get these trickles of like supporting roles or some stuff that was based on other literature, like Kiss of the Spider Woman, for example, like Dog Day Afternoon, which was based on like a true story. And these weren't necessarily incredible representation in a lot of ways. Dog Day Afternoon has this character who is trans, but it's often referred to with male pronouns, with the their dead name, you know, all this kind of stuff, which is technically true to the way that the real guy spoke about his partner, spoke about her. But that was not necessarily a very nuanced decision by the filmmakers. Uh, <laughs> it felt like it was very much just like at the time when trans people very much were, you know, trans women were regarded as just confused men. And then we also had, you know, Kiss of the Spider Woman in which this gay man has uh, been put in jail for sleeping with underage boys. Like it's not exactly a big, uh, Silence of the Lambs is another one mm-hmm. that's uh, touted as being, uh, you know, a, an LGBT themed movie when you look it up. That's that's one uh, best picture Oscar. Yeah, like, not great. Oh dear. And then we start to have films that are a little bit more positive. So um, the kids are all right. Obviously, um, we get into the Moonlight era, which of course was incredibly celebrated as it should be because it is incredible as a movie. I think if you guys have listened to me and Jazz's uh, podcast episode about it, which is just us like gushing about it and me talking about all the water imagery throughout the entire mm-hmm. movie. Uh, uh, the meme water is gay comes from Water is gay comes that, from yeah. Moonlight. Truly incredible. And so we've had other questions and debates that have run alongside it. The Oscars feel like very much the time of year where you can talk about issues you have, problems, lack of representation, things like that within the industry in a way that's very tangible because any other time of year, you know, movies are coming out constantly. It's really hard to pick like a moment to be able to say, look at the lack of something. And so the Oscars is often a time when that happens. Um, So hashtag Oscar so white is something a lot of people I'm sure will remember that essentially was made in response to the lack of celebrated roles for actors of color. And so We're getting at this point in time, we are underrepresented. Queer people are underrepresented at the Oscars in many ways, especially within the stories that are being told. And also the actors who are getting 
any roles, but particularly the queer roles themselves, we've tended to see cis and straight actors gaining mm. trans and queer roles and being very celebrated for it and being rewarded for it in a lot of cases. And so essentially this timeline brings us to today with Power of the Dog, which is a story that is technically a queer story in its storyline. Like that is... Mm. Interesting that you say technically. Why do you say technically? Not technically as in like you could argue it's not, but it's not necessarily like the kind of queer movie that we've seen before in things like Moonlight and Milk in these ones where it's like queerness is there from the beginning. Mm. It's like a journey of someone's discovery of their identity or their right, activism sure. or their, you know, whatever it is. But it's also not totally incidental mm -hmm. in the way that, Mm, I guess arguably can you ever forgive me is mm -hmm, mm -hmm. for the the lead character in that it kind of is like this slow creeping homoerotic strange oh murderous <laughs> the, the amount of leather chaps in this movie very slow film um uh no, not that my not that you already have a, a little peek into my opinion about this movie so yeah it kind of it kind of comes at a time when there's a lot of conversations around diversity in hollywood we have in the lead role that's getting a lot of celebration benedict cumberbatch who as far as we know has only ever said that he's straight although has done an interview that we talked about in the video mm -hmm. where basically he essentially he didn't say he's a not an answer yeah he doesn't say he's straight but he doesn't say he's queer he doesn't say he doesn't say he says he there are some aspects of this character's life that he doesn't relate to he said that there are some he might do. Maybe in his real life, he's just really into making rope. Oh, he loves a bit of rope. Loves. Oh, oh, oh <laughs> Benny. Oh, Benny Batch. He loves a bit of rope. And so like, and this was when he was asked explicitly about the idea of like, hey, you're like, play you've been nominated again for playing a gay character. Mm -hmm. um, Previously being nominated for the imitation game. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so his answer was like a very clearly like a coach PR answer and one that gave us like very little actual answers. <laughs> and I think that it's a very contentious issue. And a lot of people have like debated for a long time. Like we could do an entire episode with different people who have different opinions about whether or not queer people should be considered more closely for queer roles, like whether they, it limits the opportunity of actors if they do come out, you know, all of these kind of things are mixed up with it. But that's like the backdrop of discussions that are happening at the moment around it. And I think it's also a bit of a weird time for film in that we've just gone through some years of like films not being able to be made, films being delayed, all of this kind of stuff. So normally you would be able to look back a few years ago at the Oscars and say, okay, what are the movies that are being celebrated? What are the films that are coming out? What are the critical reception to them? Who has been paying attention to that? And greenlit films for this year, like that will have come out this year. And it's, you can kind of easily try and compare that pattern of like, this was doing well at the time, it was, it's been greenlit here's what's happening now. But because of all these delays and the confusion with COVID, I feel like it's very difficult to look at like, I don't know, look at Moonlight and be like, oh, a film like Power of the Dog after that, you know, big win for queer cinema would have come off the back of that to blah, blah. Like it's, it's, it's really not possible to do that at this point in Oscars history. So I think it's just, uh, it's going to be interesting to see, to see what happens with it. Yeah. Um, if you want the full conversation god knows how long that's going to, that conversation that we had on your channel is going to be where we give kind of like a big backstory into like the full history of the oscars kind of culminating with the power of the dod dot the dod Still dot. um uh, then uh, please go over to rowan's channel and watch it thanks for the plug jazza no worries my absolute pleasure also pre-order queer in here <laughs> it's here and queer but it's, it's, oh, it's neither, that's neither here nor queer um <laughs> So Jazza, that was my, uh, essentially I, I I got to do the same homework for two different classes. You, you on the other did. hand, have new homework for this episode. I did. So well, one of the things that when we were throwing ideas of themes around for when we were doing research, one of the ones that I like really wanted to talk about was the one that you suggested for the depiction of, they're often called May-December romances being so have you heard this before? i've never heard that so before. a may december romance is someone who is in the may of their life and someone who is in the december of their life um well so, in this case he was very much end of the year for this guy oh, yeah spoiler benedict cumberbatch dies um <laughs> R.I.P. but the fact that very often there is a lot of communication and uh, commentary around 
around especially same-sex couples, especially gay men, and the intergenerational nature of a lot of visible relationships there. Because this isn't really a relationship that is kind of represented really explicitly in Power of the Dog, but it is alluded to with Phil uh, Bendit Cumberbatch's character's relationship with Bronco Henry, who like teaches him to be a man, and how Phil ends up trying to teach Pete how to be a man as well. And this kind of like mentor-mentee relationship, but also has like at least a little bit of sexual um, mm-hmm. chargedness as well. From what we can see, there was a a paper from Facebook Data Science that showed that on average, same-sex relationships do have higher age gaps than heterosexual relationships by about like six years or so. And there's obviously a load of really high profile recent same-sex relationships that have big age gaps. Dustin Lance Black and Tom Daly, I think, have a two twenty year age gap. Stephen Fry and his partner, Elliot Spencer, have a 30-year age gap and were widely kind of, like, criticised, talked about, kind of, like, uh, looked down upon by a lot of the cishet media, uh, but also a lot of kind of, like, queer media as well for the apparent imbalance between people here. When you look into kind of like some of the psychology around it, it's really it's really difficult to find anything that doesn't tie like age differences in homosexual relationships, package it in with kind of like forms of paedophilia. And there was obviously a pedestry in the Greco-Roman world, which was the what we would now call sexual abuse of young boys by by men that um, often gets kind of like pulled into the analysis of these kinds of relationships. But when the academic papers that I have seen around these intergenerational relationships, they tend to actually be quite positive um, when spoken about by the people who are actually in them at the time. Uh, there's a few kind of like broader themes that happen in those relationships. Sometimes the the older person feels younger, the younger person feels older. It feels like a, it opens up kind of like the world to them. But because there's not a huge amount of like actual study there, beyond knowing that it exists and it exists more in homosexual relationships, there's not a huge amount that we can kind of like learn from it what's happening. There's obviously kind of like Freudian people who um, are like oh did you have a bad relationship with your daddy Mm. and I don't think that is necessarily Mm. true but I think as well like these people that we're talking about are obviously you know far be it from me to question the the Facebook science Mm. and and I'm not questioning it but in terms of the people that we're talking about who have high profile relationships Mm. if you think about the data around men in Hollywood Mm -hmm. and the age of their girlfriends sure yeah it kind of feels like and like the relationships we're talking about like long-term relationships between these men whereas in Hollywood there's a lot of men who are heterosexual who are having relationships and then dumping these women after like four years and they get a bit too old because they enter their 20s or whatever Mm -hmm. and then going back and they kind of say consistently the same Mm -hmm. so I think it's it's kind of like it's easy to have 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 said those stats and for people listening to be like oh my god 20 years 30 years yeah and thought about it but all these gay people with their massive age gaps mm-hmm. there are plenty and then of you and then you look at those say, especially yeah. in the in the media i mean i think that it's i guess with any relationship looking at like power imbalance whatever that looks like is important and there will be people who have a big age gap but like the younger person within that relationship is very much already an adult established within themselves what's going on like that power imbalance doesn't feel like it's going to affect their interpersonal relationship or like their their life mm-hmm, in, in mm-hmm. that way but i do think it's interesting that it is often portrayed on screen within these romances i think that there's definitely within speaking to the lesbian i guess side of things with this there is definitely very rooted in homophobia trope that is sometimes it, it appears as an age gap sometimes it appears as just a general power imbalance like mm. vibe which is the more experienced lesbian and the innocent like virginal straight girl who gets like corrupted by her. Mm. We see this a lot. Interestingly playing into that, the lesbian vampire thing, which you talk about yeah. where it is like I was a, about the to most mention Carmilla. version yeah. <laughs> of that. Although Camilla like does have this idea of it's, it's kind of reciprocated in a, some kind of genuine way. Mm-hmm. But there's this idea of oftentimes you would see in the, in the Hays Code era or around then that like these girls just needed to be saved. Like it was, this was like an evil person who was doing this to them that was like trying to bring tragedy onto them. And we've seen a few examples of this be 
subverted recently. So Gentleman Jack, I think is a really interesting example of like what could have been this very powerful, very charismatic, more masculine, experienced lesbian woman in uh, Gentleman Jack herself. And then her love interest who is this like physically, chronically ill, mentally ill, younger girl who is really not having a great time of it. Mm. But they managed to show them as equals. They managed to show them as equally invested in the relationship, equally kind to each other, equally understanding, still with their flaws. And I think that that was really refreshing for a lot of people that it didn't descend into this like weird kind of like, oh, this feels very, someone taking advantage or something that feels more like a parent-child relationship. Yeah. Which I won't lie is one of the things that freaks me out a bit about Carol. I'm not a big fan of that movie. And I feel like there's just a scene where Carol's love interest, who was a lot younger than her, has exact same hair and like going on as her daughter. And I'm like, this Mm. feels a bit weird. Oh, cool. I think there is though... I I I I think often um, homosexual relationships are different to heterosexual ones, and that is <laughs> to be expected because there are sometimes different dynamics. Mm-hmm. I especially think about the fact that, especially when homosexuality was more repressed, was literally illegal, where you would be put in prison or killed because of it, and you still are in some places in the world. There wasn't education for mm-hmm. anything. There wasn't anywhere to learn about your history. There wasn't anywhere to learn about sex or relationships. And so maybe that, especially uh, when somebody is kind of like just coming out, those kinds of seeking out an, somebody older in the in the queer community who, yeah, is going to show you romantic love, but also kind of show you the ropes of how to work in this world. I can understand why that is maybe more common mm. according to the Facebook data at the very least. I mean, I can definitely say that like, I so I've been to conferences when I used to be at university and work with like queer youth and all that mm. kind of stuff around teacher conferences, things like that, where they would talk about various topics, including child safety. Mm. And they would talk a lot about the fact that at the time there was this prevailing idea from teachers that girls were the ones who needed education on online safety. And they had essentially found that some of the most at risk youth were queer youth, particularly boys, who would put themselves into danger essentially Mm, because they had mm. no other way of learning about the queer experience. And I think that there's like, it's kind of important to separate out the idea of like healthy (laughs) relationships between consenting adults where there is an age gap and then young people who are Are being taken advantage advantage of of because they have no other way of connecting with this community that they want to be a part of. And I think the way that you ensure that that isn't a problem is essentially not doing what a lot of places are doing at the moment where they're, you know, the don't say gay bill in Florida, in Texas, where you're talking about trans, not just education, but like any uh, intervention for trans youth being classed as abuse. Like all of these things are are the exact opposite of what we should be doing to keep these kids safe. Not to, you know, get on the political soapbox in the middle of an episode, but you know, that's just, uh, felt like it was important to say. But I do think that this to me is very much an example of not exactly a, um, you know, healthy age gap relationship within media i'm not i'm not looking at these two and being like oh true love <laughs> <laughs> yeah they really are good for each other 100 especially as maybe one of them kills the other one there's there's one kind of like thing to maybe draw a line under this uh, the age gap kind of like thing and uh dan savage is a not perfect commentator on in queer spaces but i think he does have a broadly good kind of like rule for um age differences in all relationships actually called the campsite rule which is leave the per and actually should be for all relationships that you do which is leave it better than you found it Mm. or leave the person better than you found them yeah and as long as you are doing that and you are two age of age consenting adults have a lovely time (laughs) have a have a nice day (laughs) yeah exactly shall we go into this long plot (laughs) yeah well short plot short plot long 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 movie yeah this this movie is a movie where not a lot happens but it takes a long time for not a lot to happen Mm -hmm. it's really pretty though And the soundtrack is good. So you're at least kind of like letting things wash over you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Hello, sweet listener. This is Jazza. And I'm here to do the ad reads today. Hmm. This episode is brought to you by Shaker and Spoon. Shaker and Spoon is a subscription cocktail service that helps you learn how to make handcrafted cocktails right at home. Every box comes with enough ingredients to make three different cocktail recipes developed by world-class mixologists. All you need to do is buy 
just one bottle of that month's spirit. Imagine uh, 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 vodka, um, rum, uh, soju, uh, etc. <laughs> and once you have that, you have all you need to make 12 drinks at home. That's going to keep you and your partner very merry, or think about it as an opportunity to have a regular party with cocktails and your fancy, fancy friends. At just 40 to $50 every month, plus the cost of the bottle, obviously, which you purchase on your own, this is a super cost-effective way to enjoy craft cocktails, and you can skip or cancel boxes anytime. They're lovely like that. Invite some friends over, class up your nightcaps, or be the best house guest of all time with your shaker and spoon box. Get $20 off your first box at shakerandspoon.com slash queer movie. That's shakerandspoon.com slash queer movie. As I'm sure you know, dear listener, we at Queer Movie Pod are part of Multitude. Multitude is a collective of really wonderful podcasts and shows hosted by really wonderful people. If you wish you had more Multitude shows to catch up on, I have fantastic news for you, my darling. We make a weekly, friendly debate show featuring all of our hosts called Head, Heart, Gut. Every month, we take an iconic set of three items from pop culture or the world we live in and then pit them against one another. In the first three weeks, each of our contestants will present their choice, answering the questions on our definitive survey of greatness. And in week four, each contestant participates in a formal debate with a special guest judge. We have decided in the past about uh, what is the best fruit, what's the best movie sequel, uh, what is the best thing to do at the theme park, and much, much more. I have been in some of the behind-the-scenes chats for uh, Head, Heart, Gut, and I know that somebody once suggested states of matter, like solid, gas, liquid. I'm really hoping that we get to do that at some point. Head, Heart, Gut is exclusively for members of the Multi-Crew, our membership program that supports all of Multitude so that we have the flexibility and the resources to try new things, launch new shows, and keep the independent podcast engine going. You can join for as little as five American dollars every month at multicrew.club and get access to head, heart, gut. Now, back to some queer movie chin-wagging. Wag, 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 wag. Typically, we split this into three acts. Jazza, in the document that he made up, split this into five, except act five seems to be about seven times longer than every other act. So I don't entirely know what... Because act five is where everything happens, and the five acts are the ones that are provided by the movie. So my acts aren't in here. Oh, okay. Interesting. Sorry. Do you want to? Are really we keeping enjoy, that in? Or are we I really enjoy that? how how Act Two is <laughs> not even a full sentence. Okay, right. Start from so. Do you know where you're splitting the three acts? Uh, yes. Okay, go for it. So for me, the three acts are Phil is a is a is a baby boy bully. Uh, the party and its aftermath. Yep, of course. <laughs> and oh no, my potential lover has killed me. Okay, yeah, that mm-hmm. f- makes sense to me. Yeah, um, For those of you who haven't listened to the podcast before, you will find the party in its aftermath in every single one of these movies. For Even some if we have reason, to crowbar it in. I mean, but we haven't really. That's always been a party in an aftermath, I that's, feel like. That's fair. There is, I don't know, say some, Say what you want about the gays, but I do love a good knees up. We love a good knees up. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so, beginning of the movie. It's 1925 Montana. Picture the scene. 1925 Montana. But it's also very obviously New Zealand. (laughs) The men are sexist. The Uh women are exhausted. (laughs) Exactly. So we're introduced to Phil and George Burbank, a yin and yang brotherly pair who look well into their 40s? Question mark. But still share a room and sleep in twin beds. And talk to each other through the bathroom door. That was essentially what in Brokeback Mountain their plan was. It was like, we'll oh just God, sleep in our little beds in our silly little cowboy cabin. Mm-hmm. So I think, not to, not to, that plan could have worked. Yeah, okay? but the, Bro- the Brokeback Mountain boys weren't related. 
That's true. They could have pretended. So their characters are um, uh, very chalk and cheese. George, like, wears a bowler hat and a bow tie while he's kind of, like, riding along. Is a a little bit more simple. Is tubbier, blonde, has a moustache, which all great people have. Yeah. And kind of gets walked over by Phil, who is, like, this hyper-masculine rancher. All he wears is chaps Mm -hmm. and jeans is very much the alpha of this yeah. crew of this farm in an which... ag- in like a I'd say like a violent aggressive way rather than like a sexual magnetism charisma way I I would agree yeah no I, uh, sorry I was just contemplating there whether or not Benedict Cumberbatch is sexy in this movie and I mean I, I say th- no but I'm biased yeah that I mean yeah that it, it is biased for you to say anything about this to be completely honest there is a little bit of sexiness when he rubs himself in mud Okay, good. Yeah. But at the beginning, as 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 of Act One, as of Act One, just no, kind of a bit scary, probably a little bit too toxic for yeah. me. But he. Oh, speaking of toxic, we'll talk a bit more about <laughs> about toxic stuff later in the movie. <laughs> Very good. So George is also just in terms of their not just their you know whether they have a mustache or not, but also their personalities. Like George is nicer by he's a, far. He's a soft boy. He's a soft boy. Yeah. And so they essentially all descend on this like in. I guess it's like a little restaurant in the middle of restaurant saloony type vibe. And the woman who runs it is a widow called Rose who has a son, teenage son called Peter, who is very much more traditionally feminine, shall we say Mm -hmm. played by Kirsten Dunst and Cody Smith McPhee, by the way. Yes. And so very quickly, George kind of, uh, has a, has a little, uh, you know, cute, sweet, doe-eyed romance at first sight with Rose. Well, well, Phil bullies Pete and Rose and is so nasty to them, like burns some paper flowers that Pete has made and like makes Pete run away and Rose cry. And then George stays behind to settle the bill when mm-hmm. all of the other, when Phil and the rest of the yeah, rangers leave. Yeah, a sweet, nice, little romantic, nice meet-cute. Um, for them, yeah. really um, lovely. Finds Rose crying and then within a week has married her. Yeah, so here's, <laughs> the, here's the thing. That basically was act one, but then in the end of that sentence, Jazza, like of when the movie splits its, itself into acts, Jazza has already included the entirety of the plot of act two as well. I'm so sorry about that. In, uh, in just the sentence, George, George and Rose get married. Hey, don't blame me, blame Jane Campion. Like she made these act decisions. <laughs> So, I mean, it's very much one of those movies where it's like a lot of time is passing. Not a lot of stuff is happening. Mm-hmm. But I'm like, if you lay out like this, you're like, I mean, somewhat literally it was between them meeting and then they got married. Like, lots of stuff must have happened. Um, she They Not get really. married and then like Rose teaches him how to dance in the middle of the countryside and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like there is loads of character building. I guess, and a load of like seeding of things like we see Phil is very conscious of making sure that the cattle, when they're driving the cattle through um, Montana, that uh, they make sure that they're, uh, the cattle are going nowhere near the dead cow because otherwise they might get anthrax. There's the gun, everybody. Mm-hmm. That is Chekhov's dead cow, as I <laughs> described it to Jazza earlier. Like in a film like this where not a ton of stuff happens, a lot of stuff is very like uh, pointed. Mm-hmm. Very or like if they're including something in there, it's going to be significant in some way, shape, or form. Either mm-hmm. as like symbolically, so like the paper flowers, the idea of like femininity mm-hmm. and like doing things with your hands and doing things with your with your body in the way of like you know cowboys and ranching and all this kind of stuff, but also like art and delicacy, like being part of the same mm-hmm. world, but not necessarily respected in the same way. And so you you're like. Mm, be careful of that anthrax. Feels like a pointed, uh, you know, potential danger point we might come back to later. But I do think what's interesting is if you are thinking about that from the beginning, right? Okay, there's this danger, whatever. It's either, okay, is it going to be an accident that happens? Mm-hmm. Because that's one option. Or we know that Phil is a very volatile character. Is this something he's going to use? Mm. And so even though it is very obvious it's going to come back, the way that it comes back, I would say, is more surprising than it yes than you might think at first i mean especially with the introduction of pete as such a soft individual and we don't kind of get like we gradually get to see a a darker side of him as the movie goes on but i certainly within the first act one and two are maybe like half an hour long i would not have expected 
this ending to to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, but George and Rose are married. Yeah. How sweet. Very quick. What are they? Lesbians? Um, <laughs> Where's uh, that U-Haul? And she and she and she moves to the ranch where the Burbanks live and sends Pete off to medical school. Rose is being psychologically abused by Phil pretty much this whole time. He uh, taunts her however which way he can. He's convinced that she is only marrying George for his money. Despite all of this, George decides to organise a dinner party. This is the party in itself. Poor simple George. I do feel a little bit sorry for George. So there's this dynamic between George and Phil, Phil very much being the alpha. I have the impression, I don't think this is ever confirmed, but that Phil is the older brother. Phil also ended up going to Yale to study classics or something. He went to a good university to study classics, whereas George never went to university in, uh was never seen as strong enough. And so George does come across it and is primed as being like this just simple, nice, soft boy, soft guy. George puts on this party to invite their mother and the governor. So apparently they're very well connected, the governor. Yeah, yeah, the, gov- the governor, of course. Yeah, super casual. Can't have a dinner without the governor. <laughs> and decides that Rose should play the piano despite her continuously saying that she doesn't want to. Now, part of me is like, listen to your wife, George. She don't want to. But also she just, she does, it does feel like she's being kind of like... Too modest? Oh, I couldn't possibly. I couldn't, like, oh, I only played show tunes and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But she begins practicing on the piano. George gets her a grand piano as well, which is um, super, super fancy. But um, there's this one scene, which is one of the most stressful things I have ever seen in cinema. And I think it's it's one of the reasons that it took me two watches of the film to actually like it. Because the first time I watched the scene, I was, it's it's my worst nightmare. Mm. Like she's there trying to practice. She never gets past like two or three bars of this show song. And she's being taunted by Phil up in the bedroom playing the same song with his banjo, but way more competently. And he just kind of like makes her feel really shit about herself. And then when the party actually comes and the governor comes, Phil is not there to provide fantastic conversation about whether or not he swears at the cows in Latin or Greek. And Rose... It bottles it, can't bring herself to play not two notes in front of the governor and everyone's so embarrassed and it's so sad and because of that she becomes an alcoholic. Yeah, Sorry, I'm, I, that's... I'm not going to lie. If my, if my failure to play the piano resulted in alcoholism, mm. I would have been on the bottle when I was a child because I learned the piano. I took piano lessons for an embarrassingly long time and I was never even allowed to take grade one because I was so bad. (laughs) Music is not uh, in my family. Mm. Fortunately, uh, it didn't drive me to drink, but it did to Paul Rose. And that's essentially, this feels like a very American West type movie. Mm -hmm. I feel like a very like creeping sense of dread and like not even the West. Like I feel like there's a lot of like Southern Gothic style stuff. There's a lot of um, very um, domestic, insular, intense stories that we see in a lot of American plays and American cinema as well, where everything just starts to like slowly unravel for people in a very like tragic creeping way Mm. and so kind of just an inevitability at this point for these characters that it's all gonna go awfully wrong and I think at this point I'm still not sure as I'm watching like is this going to just keep going horribly like is this just going to be a series of nightmares and scenes like this where we're having to like witness these awful things happening or will someone come with a a little a little box of anthrax (laughs) A cheeky little bottle of anthrax. Just a cheeky bottle of anthrax. Cheeky bucket of anthrax. So once Rose has started drinking, Peter then comes for the summer holidays to the ranch for a summer break. Now, he's worried about her as an alcoholic, but being really pent up, kind of like Westerners, uh, nobody says anything about it directly. They mm-hmm. just kind of like hide bottles from her. Pete gets bullied quite badly again by phil on his return has homophobic slurs like thrown at him and is just not having a very he's not having the best time at one point and this is where we start getting a glimpse at pete's crueler nature he brings home a rabbit 
gives it to Rose. She plays with it for a little bit. And then we later find out that he has killed it and dissected it so that he can learn about it for his medical studies. And it made like it's it, it really is the first kind of like thing of like, oh, this guy's a bit cold hearted a bit cruel and we get explicitly told that by the script later on but part of me at this point is still like oh it's the sweet boy who made the flowers mm-hmm. he and wouldn't also, like, possibly be doing something bad yeah and he's just gone to medical school and yeah. so I can kind of see like oh it's yeah talking you're like, about like you're this dissecting. boy that he met with his mum like oh it all sounded so lovely but even like the like you know oh it's dissected a rabbit if you just have a character who doesn't go to medical school and just kills and starts like digging around in a rabbit's organs you're like hmm this one a little bit strange but because he's just come back from probably doing this at university all the time yeah and he's like grown up around like ranch hands on a farm where like animals are killed every day yeah and his dad his dad was a doctor as well sustenance like it's it's not it doesn't necessarily feel like a red red flag at this point especially when you don't know where it's going i feel like it'd be interesting i haven't watched it a second time but i think it'd be interesting for me to watch it a second time and figure out like Little things that I didn't necessarily see as red flags, like how early on does that start to go? Like, are there any moments of when he's being berated by Phil where there is like a hardness in his eyes? Or like, is it, do you know what I mean? Like a moment of like, mm, when does this person decide to say no more? But yeah, so essentially this is where the uh, potential homoeroticism element of the uh, movie comes into play. Well, well... I yes. Know. Okay. Here's it the becomes thing, explicit here. Here's the thing, Jazza. I. It was interesting <laughs> that you said well because I was like, I'm literally about to talk about a scene where Phil masturbates to a scarf belonging to his late mentor Bronco Henry, and I was going to be like, Jazza, how, how are you arguing with me that that is homoerotic? But I think what you're saying is there were ho- there was homoeroticism before the Bronco scene. So there's. And uh, there has been a lot of discussion about this movie, about it being kind of like a dismantling of the American Western. There was a lot of heat around the actor Sam Elliott making some comments about it on the Mark Maron podcast, saying that the power of a dog was shit, then said a load of like, oh yeah, like all of these guys walking around being homoerotic in chaps and the, the host of the podcast is like, it's it's a... It's about being gay. <laughs> like, you you did watch the movie, right? And Sam Elliott kind of, like, sh- probably showing some of his colours and attitudes towards queer people, to be completely honest. And I don't think he necessarily requires a lot more commentary. Mm. Um, but there is an awful lot of... And I think this is a really clever thing that the director, Jane Campion, does. Is she really does pepper this with a lot of our modern kind of... Uh, modern expectations and thought... And kind of like some kinks around uh, homoeroticism there is a lot of like chaps there's a lot mm-hmm. of like deep voice perform- a lot of leather a lot of close-ups on kind of like men working with their hands mm-hmm. and stuff like that um, very pride and prejudice of them yes very much and yeah she really uses a lot of stuff that could just be seen without much consideration as normal things that you'd find on a 1925 montana farm mm-hmm. uh but uh make it gay nowadays it's gay we did see before the scene that we that Rome was about to talk about we do see phil he's got like a little den and he does kind of like rub himself in mud and kind of like frolic around in the water oh sorry yeah like no that. i i skipped right past the bit where benedict cumberbatch is sexy in the mud i think that is quite sexy i'm just saying um good frolic yeah no i do think that's sexy now now yeah, i've decided you're on the apps like oh fancy a frolic in the den fancy a frolic in the den 100 <laughs> percent. um but then with pete there pete discovers this uh this scene, this scene of right? phil essentially Really, really incriminating himself with not just like having a wank, but having a wank with the scarf, with a stash of magazines Mm. of naked men. Mm -hmm. There's not really a lot of leeway there to uh, of ambiguity for old. Uh, Yeah. For old Phil. Phil is a closeted gay man. Most likely. Yeah, it's pretty, pretty, feels pretty, uh, pretty confirmed. Me and Jazza were talking earlier about the fact that Bronco Henry is the mentor, mm-hmm. but he's referenced by other people. So he's not like imaginary. It's got, Phil didn't just like make him up. I think that Bronco Henry did exist, but I don't think that Bronco Henry was necessarily the mentor that he was talking about his name. I think that he's given that memory the sexy Bronco Henry name because we never really see George engage with Bronco Henry 
because Phil talks about how Bronco Henry like raised the two of them to a certain extent, although clearly Phil more than more than George. So we, like you said, we know he exists, but I feel like this mythology has been built up by Phil because they lay naked in the camp together once. We're about to uh, find out about that in a second. Who do you think Bronco Henry is? I'm not going to lie to you, Jazza. Yeah. <laughs> I don't rightly know. He's a, I, I don't think anything happened between Phil and Bronco Henry. Except for... You think he's projecting? I, I don't know. I kind of feel like that could be interesting. Mm. He's like very repressed and he's projecting and he can only like let his desires out in this very like intense way and he's like he had this experience that i think that not the lying naked sharing a bed for warmth situation but the being lying or going to sleep beside someone whether like at a sleepover as a teenager or or like a friend or something mm. like that that you don't have a romantic relationship with but maybe you fancy or maybe it's like a friend that you're starting to develop feelings for like i feel like that's a very relatable to kind of any sexuality but i think especially with queerness like not knowing if that person could reciprocate your affections Mm -hmm. and that that might be a moment of realization a moment of like revelation for you but not necessarily for them Mm. and so i think that that is i don't think it has to be that they lay naked and basically fucks for that still to have been a moment that was important to phil and Mm. that told him something about himself uh, at the same time I think either of those I think I think it's interesting it's kind of left a lot of this is left ambiguous like a lot of things in this movie are left ambiguous mm. to kind of decide which I, ha- I guess makes sense because I feel like people don't just tell you their entire backstory sure <laughs> that makes sense it's handy for when you're doing the law of a movie though that's um, true I have a feeling that something the thing happening here with Benedict Cumberbatch's character is that he it's it's the whole phenomenon of do I want to be with somebody or do I want to be somebody? Mm. There's a really interesting thing about Benedict Cumberbatch's performance in that some people have would say that it's like really overly exaggerated. He's literally walking in his chaps like he's got a poo between his legs yeah. and is like clearly trying to take up as much space as possible, like really overtly, almost hilariously over-masculine. Mm-hmm. Uh, but is that the performance of the character, not the yeah. performance of Benedict Cumberbatch? It makes me think yeah. that, is it Benedict Cumberbatch playing the character of Phil, who is playing the character of Bronco Henry, mm. being the type of masculinity that he wanted to be? Yeah. He And then there is this idea, at least Phil has the idea eventually we're not quite there yet where he's going to pass down that masculinity to pete as well and obviously big twist at the end where that that doesn't necessarily happen so at this point like pete has seen phil Mm -hmm. uh you know have a little cheeky masturbation Mm -hmm. and phil have a little gay wank have a little wank and phil you know doesn't take it that well he's basically just like ah go away (laughs) and like chases him off just splashing around in the pond and that, you know, has a little splash, chases them off. And then it's like, oh, the final act. <laughs> yes. The majority of the film. <laughs> it is pretty much. Pete has to endure, like, it's like the summer and nobody's really doing very much work. And Pete, as he's walking through this camp of all of the the ranch hands, is getting catcalled, called faggot, etc. And then this is after Pete sees Phil having a wank. Phil calls Pete over and says, hey, I think we got off on the wrong foot. (laughs) Um, By me uh, tormenting you and your mother to the point of alcoholism and also me chasing you out of my little boy den. He then says, oh, I'll teach you how to ride and I'll make you a lasso. And then they end up spending some more time together. He tries to teach. And it looks like tries to make Pete feel like a a mentor to Phil. This is the point, watching it the second time, where I see something in Pete's eyes. Mm. Where I'm like, when they're having that conversation where he says, I'll make you this rope before you go back to school. And you see kind of like a moment where he stops calling him sir and begins calling him Phil. Mm. And then has kind of like a decision, a resolution. Yeah. For himself. I guess at that point, he has a power over Phil in a lot of ways. Like, he's seen him at this Is really it the vulnerable power of the dog, moment. Though? Oh, okay. <laughs> Imagine we turn around to camera and it was just like the power of the dog, like in the, in the middle of the movie. Um, but he, he kind of has an interesting power over Phil because he knows something about Phil that he could absolutely use against him. And he also has seen him in a weak, a weakened state, someone who previously had been like an absolute like terrorizer of him and his mother. 
someone who, you know, he'd had to physically remove himself from that entire space to get away from. Mm. And suddenly he sees someone who has flaws, who has desires, who has panic in his eyes chasing him away. Like that to me, I can see how that could be the moment where someone would be like, oh, I got you. Like I, you are not this invincible, invincible monster who was like come into my life to like cause my mother to become an alcoholic, to torment me psychologically, et cetera, et cetera. So actually him getting closer to Phil, if he's already decided like, I can end you, like I can be the one who stops mm. the suffering of my mother. Mm. I can see that happening before Phil starts to get close to him and actually use like allowing that to happen mm -hmm. in order for that trust to be built up in order for the eventual plan to come to fruition essentially. Mm. Because I think that there's definitely an understanding with this kind of abuse that if he doesn't get it right the first time, like he's not gonna be able to physically overpower this man. If he suspects anything and it doesn't work, Pete's dead. Mm -hmm. Like Phil will kill him. Mm -hmm. And so I can, I definitely think it's interesting that we have this relationship kind of similar to what we were saying before with the idea of f whether Phil had a reciprocal relationship with Bronco Henry of like allowing Phil to imagine his own reality, like imagine what's happening and like feeding into that, mm. whether or not anything physically happens between the two of them, but allow him to imagine that he's, to put himself in the role of like the, of Henry, right? Of the mentor, mm -hmm. of the one who teaches you how to be a man and whatever that he means. He finally gets to pass this down. He gets to pass it down. And I also think it's interesting that you said it's when the rope comes up because mm. immediately afterwards, Pete tells Phil about finding the body of his alcoholic father who hung himself. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's so almost like Phil is hanging himself with his own rope mm -hmm. in a way, in a metaphorical kind of sense that he's immediately clocked this and clocked the parallel. And that's what he decides to tell Phil about. I think it's very interesting. And he talks about the idea that like he had to cut the corpse down by himself. And then that is this idea of like strength of having the emotional and physical strength to do something like that. Mm in this moment of, I've just seen you very vulnerable. You consider me to be this weak child. I've gone through some shit and I'm coming out the other side. Mm -hmm. And also I think this is where it cements because the first time I watched this, I wanted to protect Pete. Mm. And it took me a second watching to realize, to really cotton on to what happens at the end, mm -hmm. that it's not an accident, it was deliberate. At least that's how I ended up yeah. interpreting it. I do as well, um, for sure. Uh, and realize that, oh, Pete's actually a bit of a monster, to be completely honest. And the second viewing, when he says, my dad used to berate me because I was too too hard or too strong or something along those lines. And Phil laughs. Phil, like, scoffs at him and goes, you, too hard? And like that's a side of Pete that Phil hasn't seen because all mm -hmm. he sees is a guy who is effeminate yeah and is therefore kind of like beat up underneath him but actually there's this cruelty in Pete that Phil has completely overlooked and that guard mm. has been dropped so that Pete can then go in but interestingly like for the strike. if if no one else has seen that in Pete the only person that's seen it was his like alcoholic father who clearly didn't treat his mother very well. Mm. And then now the only other person he's gonna get to see that side of him is someone else who has treated his mother badly or has done like abhorrent things. Mm. It's not that he's going out and seeking revenge on just random people or abusing random people in the way that Phil is. He very specifically is using that thing inside of himself that is a bit dark to go after the people who he considers to deserve it, who have kind of like a revenge side mm. of things, which I think is really interesting. Pete has gone off on his own. I, I did really enjoy Pete riding off and not really being able to control a horse and having little whimpers of, Ugh! he's just um, trying. Because I, I hardcore empathize with that. Finds a dead cow, likely dead because of anthrax, spoiler, and then cuts off the cow's hide um, to keep for himself. For reasons that you don't need to worry about right now. Yeah, 100%. While Pete and Phil and the rest of the farmhands are out, Rose decides in order to spite Phil to sell all of the hides that he's been working on up until this point in the movie to a Native American trader who comes through the farm. Phil comes back from being out in the country and is very sad that all of his hides have gone. 
good on Rose, I'll be completely honest. Pete then goes up to his new, I guess, mentor and uh, says, don't worry, I skinned a cow myself. I just wanted to be like you. He knows what he's doing. And then Phil is, is moved by this, holds Pete's neck in a sexy question mark way. Says thank you, and then they spend the night in the barn together, finishing the rope. Phil previously cut his hand open. And because he's a man, he's like, rub some dirt on it, stick it in this bucket full of cowhide. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't fine. do anything to cover the wound. Um, And so we see this scene where he's washing the new cowhide that is infected with anthrax that Pete gave him and incorporating it into the rest of the rope. The next morning... Phil's not very well. <laughs> Phil L- is looks not a little bit a like me time. with COVID. <laughs> yeah, looks a little bit like me with COVID. To be completely honest. Uh, yep. Uh, and very quickly, dead. He's dead. <laughs> the end. Um, almost as quickly as George and Rose get married. To be completely honest, mm-hmm. the, the, the significant things of like these people's lives: getting married, dying, happening in a pinch. Yeah. Essentially, doesn't throw up for breakfast. Needs to go to the doctor. George is picking out a coffin. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. essentially how it works, which is very sudden mm-hmm. and maybe not where people thought this was going in terms of how much of a presence Phil has been and how much of like a centralized kind of point of view character almost he's been. Mm-hmm. You kind of feel like he'll last to the end or that his death will be a little bit more of a dramatic thing to happen. Because as soon as he's dead, you're kind of like, okay, well, I guess he's dead. Like, is this the end of the, mm-hmm. of the movie? Like, mm. what is happening? And, and it is. And it is. <laughs> uh, but then, but but specifically kind of like the end, end of the movie, the conclusion bit of it is like, cool, but like he, how did he, I guess it was the infection in the hand. So we're at his funeral, right? At the end. And the doctor essentially explains it for it's us. Be, it's being quite inappropriate, I think, to the brother of the person who's dead, going yeah, like, oh my like, God, that was a terrible death. Oh like God, he spluttered, imagine. those like heaving. Oh. oh, it was horrible. But essentially tells uh, George and us as the audience that it was anthrax, most likely at least, which knowing from the beginning of the movie, like we've seen these scenes where Phil is extremely careful to make sure that if there is like a diseased cow, a dead cow, like everyone and everything is steering well clear. Like he clearly knows what he's doing around this kind of disease. And so I think there's this confusion from George as to like, well, that doesn't seem likely considering how careful Phil was. We obviously as an audience have seen all sides of this at this point. Like we know that Phil is careful, but we also know that if there's one thing that might be able to get under the defenses of Phil, it was Pete with his cutting of this cow, Mm. with his learning all of this knowledge of probably including being careful of these very same diseased cows from Phil, Mm. introducing it to Phil's open wound, being a medical doctor, even if he didn't know before, he definitely know after going to medical school that that is a bad time. Mm. Peter very much prime suspect number one, also skips Phil's funeral, doesn't go. And we get the classic title of the movie moment (laughs) where he reads uh, Psalm 22, I believe. From the common book of prayer. Oh, from the common book of prayer, of course. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling, from the power of the dog. Heavily implied the darling at this point being his mother, the innocent, Mm -hmm. the dog being Phil. Mm -hmm. So he's like, there's almost like a biblical, like a spiritual, a higher justification to ending the life of fill the dog Mm -hmm. to get to essentially removing him from the goodness that is his mother and George to to some extent this marriage that they have together them caring about each other and he essentially just smiles at the end just to give you that extra like he's good he's okay with what he's done here today Mm -hmm. he's feeling good about his choices so I didn't in my head the first time I watched it I didn't get that it was deliberate I thought it was symbolism. Mm, I thought it was just, oh, Phil's closeted sexuality is the thing that killed him. Oh. Second time I watched it and after reading other people's conclusions, (laughs) to be completely honest, um, I was like, oh, and I like that for Pete as a character Mm. a lot more as well. Yeah, I definitely think so. But also, what an evil little shit. (laughs) I mean, you say evil, I say industrious. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> you know, he's scrappy. He's taking what he can find and using it to his advantage. Okay, well, you're terrified. I mean, but here's the thing. I think if this had been a movie in which a boy protects his mother from a violent man uh-huh. violently in a fight with a direct confrontation, the expectations of boys would mean that that was like a... Honorable. Honorable. Mm. And I think that it's very interesting that it's poison. Like that's stereotypically the woman's yeah, weapon, yeah. right? Of like, you do something passively, sneakily, deceiver, you know, even the Garden of Eden vibes. And so I think it is interesting that like symbolically that it is essentially poison that's taken this mm. like man down and that it is seen as, yeah, maybe more insidious, maybe more evil, maybe more cunning or whatever, like worse for him to not have just even though obviously he would have lost if he tried to fight Phil, that he should have just confronted him about his treatment of his mother. He should have told him off. He should have said, don't do that to my mum." Like, mm. and so it's, I think it's interesting like how that dynamic plays out. Mm. Good movie. It was certainly a movie. <laughs> I think I've, we've well established on this podcast before that I find <sighs> historical movies that are very slow, uh-huh. very tedious. Sure. Did you watch this sometimes too? <laughs> I, I won't lie to you, this was not played at times one speed. <laughs> I hated it the first time because especially the banjo piano dueling mm-hmm. scene and the scene with, like, that was such a horrible... That I found funky that, jazz they were playing together. I, I found that so stressful to watch. Like, it was not... It, I think it's a great movie. I don't think it's a very enjoyable movie. Yeah, that's fair. But because of that, I think it's going to win the Oscar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that does seem very Oscar vibes. I mean, here's the thing. I feel like if this movie had been a short film, this feels like a, this feels like this, a sh- short every, story to me. This uh, feels like a story mm. that could have been in close range. Like Ev- Everything could have been squished into about 20 minutes. Yeah. Yeah, pretty fun. It's one of those things like they always say with movies, when you're writing scenes or coming up with ideas for, for novels or whatever, it's like you want to enter a scene late, leave a scene early. And so it's always like, what is the lo- what is the latest point I could start this book, this narrative, this story, and have the story still make sense? Mm. And I feel like... We just kind of like extended out some bits of it that didn't need. But at the same time, it's been received very well. A lot of people really love this movie. I think if it's the kind of movie that you like, this is a very, very good version of that movie. Yeah. Yeah, sure. So at this point, I think it's time for our special ratings. Yes. So each episode, we give each of our movies a certain number of the colours from the six-barred rainbow flag, corresponding to the meaning behind the colours. And I'm just reading my um, copy of Here and Queer here right now, and I'm really handily on page 134. It has the meanings for each of the colours, and I'll read them to you right now. Um, Pre-ordered now, where all good books are sold. Red means life or sex. Orange is healing. Yellow is sunlight. Green is nature. Blue is harmony or peace. And purple is spirit. Thank you so much, Chelsea, for reading from my book there. You're welcome. It's really high quality. Not a very original extract, I'm not going to lie. It's just the colours of the rainbow flag. But hey, it's a useful... Using this can't really copy... Yeah, there can't be a copyrightable passage there that you read out loud, so we're covered. <laughs> of course. How many would you give it and which ones? I'm going to say two out of six. <laughs> which Just ones? This wasn't my kind of movie. Nature. Yeah, Anthrax yeah. is indeed Anthrax part is of natural. nature. <laughs> and it is shot beautifully. Like one of the main characters, I think, mm-hmm. is New Zealand in this movie. And red, just because I feel like... I know it's to do with, uh, like, life. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like, you know, violent, do red, nature, red in tooth and claw, lots of death, lots of mm. drama happening over there. And also, you know, the American flag. Sure. The, the best of all the flags, as I so often say. I never say that. <laughs> never have, never will. So I would give it also green. I was leaning more orange for healing because eventually at the end... Kirsten Dunst, Rose. Um, the one, is able one to person heal. does indeed heal. Do you know who isn't able to heal? <laughs> Phil. 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 <laughs> Poor Phil. I was also leaning that way as well for similar reasons. Yeah, I, I don't think I can give it any more than two though. Yeah. To be honest. So those were our ratings for Power of the Dog. There's still a week until the Oscars if you're listening to this as the episode drops. So we would really love to hear your thoughts, your predictions as to whether or not it will win or whether it deserves the win. And if you're listening to this after the Oscars and you already know 
I guess we'll either look very smart or very silly, depending on and, <laughs> and, what happens. And let us know. Um, I mean, I love being told I'm either clairvoyant or thick as shit on the internet. So uh, either way, I'm happy. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow us on Twitter to keep up to date with everything podcast related. If you feel entertained, please do think about supporting us over on Patreon. Our patrons really do allow us to put in the hours of research and recording that goes into these episodes. So sincerely, thank you. One of our perks on Patreon is a queer movie watch along every last Saturday of the month exclusively for our patrons hosted on our Discord. Gay fun really is had by all so come join us. The Queer Movie Podcast is edited by Julia Shafini. We're also part of Multitude Productions, so make sure you check out all of their other awesome podcasts full of both fun and frivolity. Make sure you follow and subscribe to this here podcast so that you are primed for our next episode. Thank you very much, my darlings. You will hear us very soon. Toodaloo. Uh, bye. <laughs>